Well, I have a mother and a father. Fortunately, they're still living. I love them. And many of you have mothers and fathers, or even if you never met your mom or your dad, maybe you were adopted or fostered, chances are someone played the role of a mother or father in your life. We all come from somebody. And the Bible has something to say about the relationships that children are supposed to have with their parents. So as you might have guessed already, we're looking at the fifth commandment today in this sermon series. And it's a commandment that relates to how children should interact with and treat their parents. Now, before I read the biblical text for you, I wanna make a few cultural observations, if you don't mind. As we look at culture, as you spend time interacting with people, reading the news, counseling people, preaching sermons, studying, reading the newspaper, all the different points of interaction we have, you start to see patterns. You start to see trends. You start to see repeated behaviors take place in the culture around you. And I've been a pastor for a long time. I have five children of my own. I've counseled numerous people. I was a youth pastor for eight years. We have a few hundred kids and young people in our own church. So I think the observations that I'm going to make are well-founded, but we have a problem in our culture. And the problem manifests itself in different ways. So there's probably three or so sort of unhealthy paradigms that I've observed. I'm sure you've observed them as well when it comes to the way that parents interact with their children or children interact with their parents. So one unhealthy paradigm, obviously, is the abusive parent and the dejected child, the abused child. We, we, we know stories about this, where a, a parent hates, despises, takes advantage of, abuses their child, and this is, this is wrong, and we need to declare it to be wrong. It's unhealthy, whether it's emotional abuse or sexual abuse or verbal abuse, it's wrong. But there's another paradigm that we often see, and that is the, the opposite. The dominating child that controls and manipulates and is mouthy to his or her mother or father, and the passive parent that just sort of puts up with it. This is also wrong. This is also destructive to culture. This is also destructive to the family unit. And then we have a third one, which is probably the most common, and that's the egalitarian parent where the parent and child sort of think of themselves as peers. And you'll hear the parent say things like, well, my child and I are best friends. And we just always collaboratively make decisions together. This is also not God's plan for the way that parents and children should interact. None of these are healthy paradigms. So what does God have to say about parent-child relationships? Well, he has a lot to say about that at various points in the Bible, but the most foundational text is in the fifth commandment. And we're gonna look at the fifth commandment as it expresses itself in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. We know that the 10 commandments are also written out for us in the book of Deuteronomy. But we need to ask ourselves questions as we enter into this biblical text. What does God say about parent-child relationships? Are we equal in every single way? Or do we actually have different roles to play? How should children treat their parents? Now, these basic, simple questions, folks, have titanic implications for how we function in our homes, how we educate the next generation, 
how we discipline the next generation, how we provide for the next generation, what our goals are for the next generation, and even how we release our children into adulthood. So let's look at Exodus chapter 20. It's pretty short, pretty brief, but it's, it's powerful. Here's what God's word says. And by the way, don't forget, God's creator, we're created. Creatures don't apologize to other creatures for what the creator has said. He knows best. He's our designer. He's our engineer. So let's submit ourselves to his word. The Bible says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You've all heard that, I'm sure, at some point in time. And what, what is nice about this passage to the ear is that it's framed up as a positive commandment. Some of the commandments are like, thou shalt not, you shall not. There's several of those, but this one's positive. Honor your father and mother. And then there's this proverbial promise attached to it. If you do it, your days will be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So the original context is the people of God are preparing to enter into the land of Canaan, the promised land, sort of the, the earthly prevision of the eternal heaven that we're looking forward to. And God wants to bless them and see them enjoy the land and see them flourish. So one of these foundational commandments he gives them is, hey, if you're a child, and at some point we all are, make sure you honor your mother and your father. Now, you might be interested in knowing that there are also negative versions of this command also in the book of Exodus. So this is the positive honor your father and mother, but there's a couple negative versions of this. One of them is found in the next chapter, in Exodus 21, 15, check this out. You ready for a little shocker? Here's what it says. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. It's like, ooh, that's pretty extreme. And then a couple verses later in Exodus 21, 17, whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death not consigned to his bedroom for a couple hours, not, well, I guess you're not getting dessert tonight, not, well, you're not getting your allowance. But think about that. In God's mind, honoring your parents is so significant that a failure to do so can result in physical death. So we need to kind of lean in, I think, and pay careful attention to why God has given us this very significant commandment that happened to make God's top 10 list. Now, to be sure, the promise that is attached, so it says that your life might be long, this promise isn't meant to be like an ironclad guarantee. So it's, it's not like, well, hey, if you honor your father and mother, all of you are gonna make it to the ripe old age of 85. You don't have to worry about cancer. You'll never get killed in a car accident. You'll never get killed on a battlefield, but it's a proverbial collective corporate commandment for the people of God as a whole. As a general rule, as a general proverb, the more a nation understands the need for children to honor their parents, the more a nation flourishes. 
When a nation casts this aside and allows children to rule the roost or parents to abuse their children or for there to be no difference between the role of a parent and the role of a child, the nation diminishes it, diminishes. And we could study this out in human history. There are many things that ruin nations. Historians tell us that there is no nation in human history that we know of that has pulled out all the boundaries when it comes to sexual sin, just said everything's great, that lasts for more than two generations. It's a historical fact. When you become a hedonistic, pleasure-seeking culture where there's no boundaries, there's no right and wrong, just kind of do whatever you want, express your sexuality in any way you want, with anyone you want, okay, you might think that sounds like a great idea, but your culture is two generations away from either demise or extinction. So in the same way, when cultures don't guard role relationships, when parents don't act like parents and children don't act like children and we don't understand the difference between those two roles, cultures tend to take a nosedive. So this is a general proverbial truth. Now, the reason why I think this is super important is it helps to shape our cultural theology, meaning our beliefs about how cultures function. And I think most of us are thinking a lot about that, are we not? You know, we're thinking about what is the role of the government when it comes to our health? What are the boundaries that they have? What's the role of the state when it comes to its authority over the church? What's the role of the state when it comes to opening and closing or flicking on, flicking off like a light switch? the ability for business owners to, to make a living or not make a living? What is the role of a state when it comes to educating or better said, indoctrinating our children? Why does it seem like the state thinks they know what's best? What's the role of a state in censorship? So we're thinking about all these cultural issues and this is very foundational. We need to also think about what does our culture say in terms of the lies they tell or the truths they uphold when it comes to relationships between parents and their children. Cultural life itself, meaning the relationships that were part of in society, very much rise and fall on parent-child relationships. So we often talk about marriage. We want healthy marriages in our churches. Why would we not? We want people to have healthy marriages in society. We know that the family unit is the building block of culture and nations. But you could almost argue that more foundational to mar than even marriage itself is the role of child and parent because we all start off as children before we become married adults. So if we can't get this first stage of life correct, well, chances are it's also gonna affect our future marriages and then the way we raise our children, etc. So we need to elevate this command to an exceedingly high level as the Bible does. And I gotta say, when I was reading Exodus 21, I automatically started to think about my you know, punkish teen years when I would mouth off. To my, I come from a broken home. My dad wasn't around, but when I would mouth off to my mom and I'm thinking, man, if I was living in the time of the Old Testament, I wouldn't be here today. I would have been put to death over and over and over again if that was even possible. So there's a certain conviction there that's like, man, I better, I better kind of make sure I understand this and and teach this to my children because God thinks it's, it's pretty significant. So what are some principled lessons? We'll talk about some practical stuff too, but what are some principled lessons 
that we need to take to mind when it comes to parent-child relationships. Well, the, the, the passage implies innately the following lesson. Parents and children are not equal. Parents and children are not equal. Now you might say, well, that sounds kind of a little off. We're all humans. We're all made in the image and likeness of God. Yes, that's true. But maybe a helpful distinction for us to understand, and this affects many relationships, is to differentiate between, and I'll use a couple fancy words, but then I'll explain them. I just don't have any better words to give you. We need to differentiate between ontological equality and functional equality. So let's talk about the first one. Ontology is the study of being. It's who you are. What are you? Oh, I'm a human. I'm a male. I'm an image bearer. I'm made in the image and likeness of God. I'm precious and valuable. I'm of infinite worth. Jesus Christ shed his own blood for me. So when we study who we are, we talk about those things. And it is true that all human beings from conception to natural death are absolutely and 100% equal in terms of our worth and our value and our significance. So that's true, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a different category. I'm talking about our function. Each of us has different roles that we play at different points in our lives. So in a healthy nation where things are functioning properly, you have parents that are raising their children. Who's in charge? The parents are functionally superior to their children. They've been given for 18 or 20 years the assignment to raise those children. They're responsible to provide for their child, to teach their child, to educate their child, and to prepare their child for adulthood. In society, in a proper functioning society, police officers, judges, governors, kings, queens, they're not better than us ontologically, but they are superior to us functionally as they carry out their God-assigned roles, which are, by the way, alluded to in Romans 13 and don't include absolute authority over every aspect of life, but that's a sidebar. In a relationship like this, pastors, elders are superior in terms of their function in the church. If I don't take seriously my role as an authoritarian, authoritative leader in the life of the church, I will fail you. You won't be blessed by it. I won't be blessed by it. If we have this notion, oh, we're, we're all exactly the same. Nobody has any more authority than anyone else. Hey, churches don't function. Families fall apart. The state falls apart. So we're not suggesting that men are better than women. Women are better than men. Children are better than their parents. Parents are better than their children. The prime minister is better than you or you're better than the prime minister. No, ontologically we're equal, but functionally at different points in our lives, God gives us different places and positions of authority. And this is really what this passage is trying to help us to understand, that parents and children are not equal in terms of their role. So this is part of our theology of what I would call representational leadership representational leadership. In life, God places people in positions of authority over states, over families, over households, over marriages, over churches, over businesses, etc. 
And if you're in charge, if you're the person that's sort of top of the heap, your role is to reflect the loving, but firm and courageous, authoritative nature of God. And this, this will help you to be a better boss, a better parent, a better husband, a better pastor, a better prime minister, a better premier, etc. God is not egalitarian in the sense that, you know, everyone is equal and no one has greater authority than others. Now, folks, in our modern culture, this has been tossed out. It's been tossed out. This is actually the underlying principle of cultural Marxism, of communism, of fascism, that everybody's equal. If you're a little more wealthy than another person, you're bad. If you're a little more authoritative than someone else, you're bad. If you have a position of power, you're bad. So what happens is in a lot of these philosophies and systems, they want to flatten everybody out, make everybody the same. But you know what actually happens? That's impossible. Somebody still calls the shots. So big brother becomes your God, your idol, or the state, or the ideology, or the system becomes your God, your idol, your boss, if you will. And so even in these radical egalitarian philosophies of life, they don't even work and they're not even functional. Nevertheless, when it comes to parents and children, uh, many of the time, much of the time, these relationships are confused because of what we experience in culture. So let me give you a few examples of this. We put our kids through Christian elementary school, at least most of them, but five years ago, we moved out of Windsor into the county. And so a couple of our kids finished their elementary education in a public school. And I was fascinated when a couple of our kids, younger kids came home and they said, hey dad, what's, what's interesting at school is the principal and the people in charge said, well, well, you're not students. We don't call you students because you know, parent student sounds like authority, right? So what, what do the parents of this public or the, the teachers and principals of this public student, uh, public school call the students, what we would call students, friends. We're just friends. We're all friends. So the, parent, the teacher would never say, okay, students. He or she would say, okay, friends. Now you might think, okay, who cares? It's just a little difference in language. You know, when I was in school, we were called students. Now they're called friends. Folks, it's a philosophy. It, it's, it's reducing authority. Teachers are no longer teachers, they're facilitators. Children are no longer students, they're they're friends. We see this spilling over into other aspects of life, as I've already mentioned. If you're wealthy, well, you must be an abuser. You must be evil. If you're a successful nation, you need to apologize for your success. If you're a parent, don't even think you have any authority over your child. And by the way, think about this. When the state tells parents they don't have authority over their child, what's going on there? The state is taking authority over the parent and by definition, the family as a whole. When Susie and I tried to foster kids several years ago, we successfully raised five. You think we would qualify? And we talked about disciplinary tactics. Our social worker said, well, if you as a couple even send your child to their bedroom to discipline them for inappropriate behavior, 
we will not qualify you as foster parents. Really? I mean, people debate spanking, standing someone in the corner, but I'm not even allowed to say, hey, go to your room, you've been bad. So I'm not, think about the message there. I'm not allowed to exercise authority over this child that I'm responsible for, but the state, the all-prevailing benevolent state represented by the social worker, she has authority over me in terms of how I discipline or do not discipline a child. Now, different social workers have different perspectives. I've come to understand they're not all the same, but I'm just pointing out these cultural phenomenon that we're seeing where there's a diminishment of authority and ultimately it not only brings destruction, but the state becomes authoritative over all. So again, we are equal in value and as image bearers, but we are not equal in function. So when I, my kids were younger and you know, they're a little bit older now, but when I was raising them in their younger years, I would say, don't ever say no to me. And when I say that, some parents are like, really? That's kind of, why would I allow my child to say no to me? You don't say no to me. Now, I'm not going to give you rule after rule after rule and control every aspect of your life. But if I say, go to bed, guess what you're going to do? You're going to go to bed. You're not going to negotiate. You're not going to say no. That's not going to go well for you. If I say, go do your homework, you're not going to say no to me. Like, don't even think about using that word in your vocabulary until you're an adult. And when you're an adult, I'm going to release you into adulthood because my perspective was I'm not raising kids, I'm raising adults. So when they're 18, they're adults. And when they're adults, then they can say no to me. But they got to move out (laughs) in order to do so. And I'm not going to control them, and I would expect them to exercise the same loving, caring authority over their child. I mean, you've got to take seriously the role of parenting because parenting, in many respects, simply reflects the divine authority that God the Father has over us. Isn't it interesting that God calls himself a father? I think we sang that in one of our songs today. God is a father. So notice how God takes, he's not literally our father, spiritually he's our father, but he takes an analogy that we should understand, father, child, from our human relationships and he uses it to help us to understand our relationship with him. And then we take that understanding and we use it to reflect our authority over our children. So parents are not told here to honor their children, but children are told to honor their parents. So what, what is a parent's responsibility? If it's not to honor your child, what is a parent's responsibility? Well, here's a few passages that help us along. Deuteronomy 6 verse 7, we're to teach God's word to them diligently. So we're to teach them truth. That's super helpful. The more you can do that, the better your kids are going to be. Matthew 7, 9 frames up parenting as an act of provision. So Jesus says there, hey, what father if his child asks him for bread, is going to give him a stone. Can you imagine that? Your child's hungry and you're like, ha, 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 here's a bowl of rocks. <laughs> kind of, that'd, be, that'd be cruel, right? No, you, you provide for your child. You give them bread. You make their lunch. You make them you know, the peanut butter sandwich to fill their stomach. They're, we provide for our children. That's our job, especially when they're very young. In 
Ephesians 6, 4, it says, fathers do not provoke your child to anger. So we don't abuse our children. We don't goad them into angry outbursts. But it says there, we discipline and instruct them in the ways of the Lord. So the, these are the roles, some of the, 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 the role functions of a healthy parent. But the role of a child is to honor their father or their mother. We honor those above us. And by the way, if you're younger right now and you're like, oh, this is not a sermon I like. The better job you do honoring your parents, the better parent you're going to be in raising your kids. You know, what goes around comes around, as they say, more often than not. So you might think, oh, it's a little bit of a drag right now. I got to honor my mom and dad, obey them and everything. Hey, chances are one day you'll be a parent. If not physically, spiritually, you'll mentor, you'll encourage, you'll disciple, you'll impact other people. So you, you sort of pre-qualify for that as you seek to do that which is right with your mom and your dad. So your parents are in a, a unique position of authority, an authority which, if cast aside, brings calamity upon families and their children. By the way, folks, no child benefits, no child benefits when a parent acts like a child, throws temper tantrums, acts like you know, you're your child's best bud. Nothing wrong with having a good relationship with your kids. That's a good thing. But make sure you, they know you're still their mom or their dad. And no parent benefits when a child acts like their peer or worse, their superior. That just brings frustration and perversion to the relationship. So I, I like to think about <clears throat> how I think, how people think. Um, I'm sure right now, many of you who are parents, the, you know, the wheels are turning and you're, you're assessing and you're analyzing how you're raising or want to raise your future children. And I wanted to share some points with you. I wrote down eight of them, things that I think hinder discipline or instruction or honor in a relationship. So what I want you to do here is to kind of like head off at the pass any mental obstacles or boundaries that may stand in the way of you requiring your child to honor you and then properly parenting your child. So one thing, I've actually heard parents say this, well, I don't really want to discipline my child or lead my child because they might hate me. Have you heard that? They might hate me. I mean, I, I've actually thought about that myself. You know, you're about to come down on a child and exercise some discipline. You're like, ah, oh, is it worth it? They, they might hate me. And how are we going to recover that? Because I, I want things to be good, right? I want things to be good. That can be a problem. Secondly, what if my child abandons God or faith or the church? Like if I tell them, no, you're not doing that. That's wrong. What if they just say, okay, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm not coming to church. I'm not going to youth group. I, I don't love Jesus anymore. No, oh, that could be a barrier, a hindrance. Or how about this one? What if the authorities step in? What if they call CAS? What if the, you know, all-knowing 25-year-old childless social worker with her MSW shows up and tries to take my child from me? What am I going to do? Or how about this one? Well, I, I listened to Dr. So-and-so, the therapist, and they told me that, you know, these biblical principles aren't nouveau enough. They're not modern. They're not workable, right? The, the experts. What about the experts? 
They, 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 they disagree with you, Pastor Aaron. They disagree with the Bible. Or how about this one? You're tired, you come home from a long day at work and you're like, you know what? I'm just not into the drama. Yeah, any of you have a child that's sort of into the drama? You know, I may, may or may not have had one or two of those. And um, my poor children right now. But some children have a shorter fuse. They're more reactive. They're more emotional. And you're like, okay, I don't, I don't, I don't want to get into that. I'll tell you, in my home growing up, it was a lot of drama. I was squeezed between two sisters that would tear your head off if you looked at them the wrong way. I had anger issues. I have some younger brothers that have some issues. <laughs> One of them might be sitting in church today. We all had our issues. And there were times, I mean, we, we, were, we were bad kids, throwing plates at each other when mom wasn't around, smashing them, throwing each other down the stairs, hitting, stuffing my brother in a washing machine or dryer. We did some bad things. And you know, parents come over like, oh, I'm not into the drama. So that can be a hindrance. Or how about this? Well, that's not how I was raised. And I turned out okay, I think. So we set aside biblical principles and we go more with, well, that's just how we did it when, when I was growing up. Or a failure to understand, and I've said this over and over again, I think this is sort of simple but revolutionary. One of the best principles somewhere along the line that I stumbled across raising my kids is realizing I'm not raising kids. That's not my goal. I'm raising adults. So whatever age they're at, my goal is always to get them to successful adulthood. And that changes the way you raise kids. You know, you put the cookies in the top shelf, make them reach for it. Send them to work early. This is good for them. Talk to them about relationships early. This is good for them. Give them opportunities and responsibilities early. This is good for them. Don't coddle. Don't baby. Like, I know you want to keep them around, but like push them out of the nest. Th these are beneficial principles and then an eighth one is just a failure to discipline, just to set straight. What is discipline other than just correcting and setting straight? You're going this way. No, 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 no. You will go this way. I want to go this way. No, you're going to go this way, right? You're disciplining. You're disciplining them in terms of the way they speak, interact with others, understand God, school, relationships, all that, you're disciplining them. So when we don't do these things, these, these are eight things that come to my mind that all stand in the way of putting into practice the fifth commandment. And really, if, if you could sort of look at them all, they're all sort of based upon this what if notion. Well, what if they go astray? What if they don't like me? What if they react? What if someone else steps in? What if, what if, what if? And this is an exhausting way to live your life, worried about what ifs. Principled people just need to focus on what is and let the chips fall where they may. And what is, is what God has said is. And what does God say? He says, children, honor your father and mother, period. So if, you, if you're a principled centered parent, you're like, hey, yeah, the kid might run off. Yeah, they might stop going to church. Yeah, they might hate me, but I'm just going to do what God says. You know what happens? Chances are at the end of the day, they actually turn out to be healthy people and your life is a whole lot easier. So forget about the what ifs. Don't, don't be a manipulator, a schemer. A, well, some parents are far, far too strategic. 
Just do what God has said. And the chances of your kids turning out well increase exponentially. Not to mention that if you don't put, you know, obey what God has said, you're also just flat out disobeying God. So this is the first principle. And then there is a second principled lesson here that's worthy of our consideration. And that is that we need to restore age, which parents represent vis-a-vis kids, to its revered position. I was thinking about this. Parents are necessarily older than their children, right? Biologically, that's always the case. Parents are always older than their children. And in the ancient Near East, the time within which this was written, unlike the modern era, it was actually, think about this, better to be older than to be younger. It's kind of a shocker, right? Because in our culture, it's been reversed. It was better to be older than to be younger. Because when you were older, you were considered wise, sagely, experienced. People would look up to you because you were older. Do people look up to older people in our generation, generally speaking? No, no, no. Oh, you're old. Your hair's falling out. You have wrinkles. People are like, how old are you? I don't want to say. (laughs) I wish I was 10 years younger. Like we see these mindsets in our culture, right? So in the ancient Near East, wisdom and stature were connected with age. Doesn't the Bible say something about that? Even when Jesus was preparing for ministry, he grew in wisdom and stature. So in ancient cultures and in some honorific cultures today, being older is better. But in 2021, everyone thinks being younger is better. Younger is better. So age, this is why we have aged people trying to act like young people. Right? You want to be hip and cool and you're 50 years old. First of all, if you're 50 years old and you consider a 20-year-old hip and cool, something's wrong with you. 50 is super cool. Not quite there yet, but it's super cool from what I understand. We have older people being overlooked in work. Well, you're too old. We're not going to hire you. You're 60 years old. You're 55 years old. You're only going to give the corporation another 10 years. Corporations should be thrilled to death. As soon as someone applies, it has gray hair and some experience. This is a good thing. People are embarrassed to tell you their age, right? We see that. I don't know. How old are you? I don't know. You shouldn't ask that. Why not? Do you know how old I am? I'm 48. I have zero interest in being 47, much less 35, 25. Good riddance to all of that. I want to be 48. I don't want to be 49. (laughs) I want to be 48. I want to live in the moment. I don't want to be older than I am. And I don't want to be younger than I am. How old are you? I'm 48. I'm not ashamed of that. People say, oh, your hair's falling out. Yeah, so what? Hasn't done me that much over the years anyway. (laughs) I'm more sore than I used to be. I'm getting some wrinkles. Great. The quicker I can get home to be with Jesus, the better, as far as I'm concerned. So we need to restore into our culture, at least into our churches and into our Christian relationships, we need to honor age. Age is a good thing. 
If you're 60 years old, I want to honor you. I want to learn from you. If you're 70 years old, I want to learn from you. If you're 35, you can learn from me. Right? So becoming comfortable with your age, this is, this is where God has put you. But God's design for you is to be the exact age that you are right now. Why are you embarrassed by that? Why are you desperate to be older, desperate to be younger, or to pretend you're younger, or to act immature? We need to restore into our culture, and it starts in parent-child relationships, an esteem for age, because age is associated with wisdom and stature. This is, this is what makes the world go round. By the way, we haven't even defined the word honor yet. So let me just do that for you. How do we honor our parents? The word honor in the Hebrew Bible, actually before the Hebrew Bible was written, the word meant weighty or heavy. You pick some, oh, it's, it's weighty, it's heavy. So this, this word honor, weighty or heavy, was derived from a word that referred to something that was heavy. Why? Because generally if it's heavy, it's more substantive. And if it's more substantive, it's of more value. Would you rather pick up a flake of gold or a big box of gold? So this word, which meant weighty or heavy, took on this meaning of honor. It's, it's something you esteem. It's something you value. It's something you prize. It, and, then it, and then from there, it was used relationally. It's something you respect. It's someone you obey. So to honor your father and your mother is to esteem them. It's to care for them. It's to cherish them. It's to value them. It's to respect them. And if you're still under your roof, under their roof, it's to obey them. If you're an adult and you formed your own household, you know, we have this leave and cleave theology, so you don't have to obey your parents as an adult, but you still have to care for them and esteem them and respect them. And some parents will make that easy. And some parents might make that a little more difficult. But that's our job. I want to finish up by taking us to another passage of the Bible. This applies, I think it applies in some respects to what we see going on in our nation today. So I want to talk about the consequences on a nation that forgets this, right? The consequences on a nation that forgets this. So way back, in the 700 BCs, God decided to judge Israel and he allowed them to be taken off into captivity into Assyria. And a later prophet in the sixth century, the prophet Ezekiel is commenting on God's judgment of Israel. And he's basically saying like, this is why God judged you as a nation. You had it all going on. God said, you know, honor your father and mother and the days will be well with you and the land I'm gonna give you and now I've taken you out of the land, why? So the prophet Ezekiel is rattling off sins. And you, well, one of them is you've profaned the Sabbath and you've practiced idolatry and all that, right? And so God judged the nation of Israel because they decided God's laws weren't for them. But in Ezekiel chapter 22, one of the sins in this list of sins we normally think about, oh yeah, idolatry, I get that, you know, murdering children, I get that offering their children as burnt offerings to pagan gods. Okay, yeah, that, that seems like it would bring judgment of God. Here's one. In Ezekiel 22, seven, father and mother are treated with contempt. Hmm. And so in verse 15, 
as a consequence of that and other sins, God says, I will scatter you. So we have this historical example from like 2,700 years ago where God judged a nation because the nation started to treat parents with contempt. Same God, same principles, same commands. Did it happen overnight? No, it took a little bit of time, but God judged the nation. This is why we're preaching hard in our church until our nation returns to God's laws as the foundation of culture and life and family, there is no hope. There's no hope for our nation. It's just gonna get worse and worse and worse. God will always have a remnant. He'll always save people and restore people. But the nation as a whole will increasingly be under God's judgment when God's laws are cast aside. And you know what? What's interesting about God's laws is that when they are actually practiced, even people that aren't Christians benefit from it. People of other faiths benefit from it. I mean, people of other faiths come to countries like ours that are historically more Christian or Christianized at least because of liberty, because of freedom of conscience, because of freedom of speech, because you can actually make your own decisions about your health. They, they fled from tyranny thinking there was freedom in Canada but as Canadians have tossed out God's law and the all-seeing state has taken charge, everybody suffers from that. So I'm not the kind of guy that's like, well, let's, let's champion Christianity because every Canadian is going to be a Christian or has to act like a Christian. That's not our goal. You're saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ by his death, burial, and resurrection alone, not by acting Christianly. But when a nation acts Christianly, truly Christianly, not fake Christianity, not abusive Christianity, not coercive Christianity, but truly Christianly, everybody benefits from that because the creator that created us knows what's best. And when it comes to our relationships with our children, if we were to practice this, there'd be more justice, there'd be less child abuse, Courts would be corrected because God's law is best. We actually contribute to a healthy culture then when we raise our children properly and help them to understand the need to honor their parents. We contribute to the nation's health and to generations that will come after us. So parents, take, take seriously your job to raise your kids well. It's not super complicated. If you need help, hang out with people that do it well. That's what we did. We just always look for people that are a little older than us that, have done it well. Hey, how'd you, how'd you handle that situation? Just hang out with healthy people. More than ever, we need a faithful remnant that's gonna raise faithful children because the fight that's before us is a generational fight. This, isn't, I am, this is not going away in two years, sorry. It's probably gonna take 25 or 30 if we work hard just for things to be somewhat normal again and probably 100 for there to truly be reformation unless Jesus comes back before that. This is not a quick fight because the nation's been sick for so long. But if God blesses you with children, contribute to the health of culture and society by raising them according to God's commandments and decrees, you will benefit and future generations will benefit as well to the honor and glory of God.